From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. Really need to constantly remember that people are often putting their careers on the line when they make a bet on what they're buying from you. And that you got to make sure that they trust you and that they trust that you're going to take care of them. There will be problems with the deal, with the product, whatever it might be. You really have to have trust, not just in the vendor, uh, the provider, but as you as an individual, that you're going to be there for them when tough times come. Hi, folks. Justin Schreiber here. Today, I'm joined by Mark Whalen, Chief Revenue Officer at Box. From his early days in sales working the phones in a Nortel Network boiler room to the top sales job in one of the most innovative companies in tech, Mark has seen a lot of deals. In the process, he's come to some surprisingly low-tech conclusions about what propels the world's best sellers. He talks a lot about grit and empathy and has gotten really good at spotting the people who possess those qualities and building organizations that play to those strengths. Over the course of his career, Mark has also learned a lot from some of the best. On today's show, he'll share his reflections on Mark Benioff and Aaron Levine and what those leaders do to build cultures that deliver long-term competitive advantage. He'll also make a case for why sales can be managed based on one core metric. And by the way, it's not revenue. Let's jump into the conversation. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, Mark, I am really looking forward to this discussion. We're going to try something that we haven't done before, and that is play the game I like to call confirm or deny. <laughs> All right. That sounds we're, good. We're going to go back to, to the childhood of Mark. Number one, confirm or deny that you can actually live off of cereal and raviolis for multiple days on end. This is confirmed. Uh, I was <laughs> I was raised by a single father, and he would go uh, out on business for three, four days and he would go to the local Italian delicatessen and get like five trays of raviolis and go to Safeway and get a bunch of cereal. And he'd say, uh, I'll be back Thursday, boys. (laughs) We had this thing in my family. I think it was started by my dad. The cry went out, every man for himself. And that meant you just had to get your own food. It could be frozen. It could be fresh, whatever. It just had to be somewhere in the house. And that was pretty much the way we rolled. So I can totally relate to that story. That is uh, indeed the way it was in my home. Now, in my home today, I could have a refrigerator full of prepared meals. And if I went away, my children would die of starvation. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the sad irony in the day and age in which we live. Well, tell me a little bit more about growing up with your dad then. What were some of the challenges associated with that? And what are some of the things that you learned as a result of that? Yeah, well, my parents split up when I was about five and, and you know, uncharacteristically, uh, I was raised by my father. So my, my mom moved to San Francisco and, and my dad raised my brother and I in Oakland. And, you know, we definitely went back and forth and saw my mom, but it wasn't a custody situation. I was really raised by one parent. And... Uh, honestly, I didn't really have a lot of challenges with it. I, I loved it. I had a lot of freedom and, you know, we lived in, in, uh, in the Rockridge area in Oakland for people, you know, from the Bay area. And it's a kind of semi-urban environment. And I hung out with my friends in the neighborhood and I went to school and I skateboarded and, 
I just had a good time. It really, I didn't, I didn't know until I was much older that that wasn't normal. So you were right off of College Avenue in yeah. Oakland. And for those that know Oakland well, that's one of the main thoroughfares. The reason I love College Avenue, there's a pizza joint called Zachary's Pizza. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say something controversial. The best Chicago style pizza does not exist in Chicago. It exists in Oakland, California at Zachary's Pizza. Yeah, so I grew up a block away from Zachary's Pizza, and I had a whole lot of it coursing through my blood for, for much of my life. I would tell you that my my high school and neighborhood friend, Pachi Espiros, worked there for years. And then after he went out and started his own Chicago-style pizza company. So I would argue with you that there's a better one. It's called Pachi's, and they have locations. Pachi's Pizza. P- around. I think it's P-A-T-X-I. P-A-T-X-I. Uh, yeah, for you pizza lovers, there's a, a bunch of them around the Bay. And that was started by a guy that worked at Zachary's in the 80s. There's something interesting going on in Oakland right now. And again, this is local Bay Area politics, but you're definitely seeing a change happening. Can you talk a little bit about what Oakland was like in the 70s versus what it's like today and just some of the dynamics that are at play? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a dramatically different place than when I was a kid. And, and it's always been a city, you know, with challenges and with conflict. It's very uh, economically and racially diverse. Uh, but, you know, the street that I grew up on, um, there were, you know, teachers and uh, people from all walks of life. There were priests and all, all different sorts of people that lived on that street. And, and now, you, you, you know, the homes are two million dollars plus. Uh, my father bought his home for thirty eight thousand dollars. So it was more of a kind of middle class neighborhood now uh, back then. And now it, you have to have pretty decent income to buy into that neighborhood. And then overall, the city has just gone through, you know, tons of economic development and a lot of the wealth that was been created maybe in San Francisco and the tech boom has, has moved across the bridge. And um, and so if, if you live here, you know, there's a lot of people that like celebrate uh, a lot of that, that the restaurants and bars and nightlife is really great now. And that was not really the case uh, 20 years ago. But it's created a huge uh, increase in cost of living, which has created massive displacement of Oaklanders that have been forced to leave or now are homeless. And so it's it's a it's a place now that has a lot of really great qualities, but it's definitely really, really challenged by the current environment. One of the things that I've talked about with previous guests are the doors that this post-COVID era opens up, allowing people to move away from these hubs whether it's a technology or an industrial hub and still feel enfranchised. The key, though, to that is people need access to technology. They need access to education. They need to be placed in a position where they can capitalize on these opportunities or these moments so that they don't continue to be shut out. Absolutely. And we've certainly learned that in this in this period of remote work. Lots of people at Box have moved out of the major urban centers where they lived before. And, you know, we have people that have moved to Colorado and to Florida and Texas, and they've moved all over the place. Um, and, and the good news is, you know, pretty much every one of us has a MacBook Air with only web apps on it. So when we were told to go yeah. home, it was no big deal for us. Yeah, I'm sure it's right. the same at People AI. Um, but I know for us, we're definitely a uh, an in-the-office culture. We really like being together and collaborating. So it will be interesting to see, you know, how this all plays out. I can't wait to get to the office. We're opening our San Francisco office on July 14th, and I might be the first one there when the door opens. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Second question related to confirm or deny. I once heard 
speak of the fact that you were undercover security masquerading as a bagger <laughs> at a local local supermarket. Can you confirm or deny this rumor? I can confirm I was a bagger at Safeway on College Avenue, College in Claremont in Oakland when I was in high school. And I loved that job. Uh, but we did spend some time catching shoplifters, which was the uh, entertaining part of the job is, you know, you bag groceries, you're talking to people, you're having a good time, and then you go out to collect carts. And, and oftentimes you'd see someone running out of the store. And uh, it was a very different time that, you know, we would like be tackling people in the parking lot and waiting for the police to come, which is not advisable. <laughs> you, would, you would not want to do that today. <laughs> the, the rough and tumble world of supermarket bagging. Who knew? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, actually, though, uh, I know that you actually really enjoyed the job of bagging at a supermarket. How does a guy like you that's achieved so much find joy in bagging groceries? Uh, I really enjoyed it because you're talking to people. You know, uh, it, 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 it was different back then that, you know, now when you go to a grocery store, I'm usually packing my own groceries. But back then. You know, there'd be like 10 aisles and all 10 aisles would be would have a checker on them and all 10 would have a bagger and there would be lines on every single one of them. And so the place was just full and it was, you know, where I grew up was a neighborhood. And so I would say, you know, a quarter of the people in line I knew or I knew their kids. And it was just uh, it was just fun to work there. And and most of us that were bagging groceries were high school students and they were kind of, you know, goof around socializing with your coworkers and you're talking to customers and it was just fun and the pay was good. And, you know, it's three blocks away from my house and that was a good time. This idea of community has transformed so much. You talk about a bagger talking to someone standing in line. It was those serendipitous interactions that just happened all the time because of the way that our society was structured back then that created this fabric uh, of community. And to a large extent, technology has come in and it's 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 eliminated a lot of those jobs. I know I mostly do self-checkout now. Mm -hmm. I don't have to talk to human beings. It can be a struggle, struggle, and especially when you apply that to sales, it can be a struggle to create those meaningful human relationships that used to be so natural. Is that something yeah. that you've encountered? And if so, how do you address that? Yeah, well, just I mean, just to put a pin on the point at the Safeway that I worked at, there was also, you know, people would stay in these jobs for much longer. And so the checkers that I was working with, they my parents were my mom was bringing me through that Safeway when I was an infant. So they, you know, I was there with my mom shopping when I was an infant, when I was a toddler, when I was a five year old, they watched me grow up and then I'm 16 year olds bagging with them. So it was just like this very, like extremely communal feeling place. Uh, and then, you know, with regard to the world that we're in now. Um, I think that sellers get really, really focused on what it is that we're selling. You know, I'm selling CRM or ERP or data warehousing or AI, or we really get into like the industry that we're in. And what I have found is that it doesn't really matter what you're selling. We're in a people business. And, and I, and I constantly remind my sales teams of that is that we're selling to people and, and that it's Mark Benioff used to always talk about that we're in a trust revolution and we really are. And if you're in a sales career, uh, you know, people have been mistreated by salespeople and let down by them and have been sold to with people that lack integrity for years and years and years. And they're just waiting for a seller to make the smallest of mistakes, the most minor of infractions. So that will validate for them that this seller is just like all the crummy ones that came before him or her. And that's something that we have to be very, very careful uh, with in these days. Really need to constantly remember 
that people are often putting their careers on the line when they make a bet on what they're buying from you. And that you got to make sure that they trust you and that they trust that you're going to take care of them. There will be problems with the deal, with the product, whatever it might be. And they really have to have trust, not just in the vendor, uh, the provider, but as you as an individual, that you're going to be there for them when tough times come. You and I had a chance to catch up a few days ago. I asked you what the core tenets of your sales philosophy were. I thought that it was interesting. The first thing you said is, I remind my team, you're in the people business. That's something you never would have had to say a few decades ago. So it's telling that that is something that you emphasize at your organization. Not only is it important, but it's relevant to remind people that that's the case. Yeah. And it's, you know, we sell a thing, a product, a a platform that we call a content cloud. And I'm constantly reminding people that we are not in the content business and we're not in the cloud business. We're not in SaaS. I mean, we are, but we're in a people business. Like that's has to be paramount and it can't be forgotten. So yeah, I think it's a really important mindset. So aside from your, your bagging career, which clearly laid the foundation for success in sales, how did you get your first actual job in sales? Yeah, well, I was uh, I went to San Diego State, um, which when I went there, you had to have a pulse and a signature to get in. Now, I think you can barely get in with a 4.0. And, and so the, my degree has like uh, gone up in value since I graduated from there many years ago. Uh, but when I was graduating, I studied communication and rhetoric there. And I went to the career services department and they told me with my grades and my degree from San Diego State, I could make $19,000 as a journalist. And I said, like, you should give me my money back for all the tuition I've paid because I'm making more than that right now, waiting tables at the Red Lobster. <laughs> it was kind of ridiculous. And I, it was sort of a deflating conversation. And I just thought to myself, well, if that's what the pay is, then I'm not going to do it. And I was going to buy a, a VW bus and go travel around the country and see a baseball game in, in every ballpark in America, which I kind of wish I did. It would have been great. Uh, and then a, a really close friend of mine, um, Rick Pizzoli, who uh, graduated a year before me, he was at uh, Northern Telecom, Nortel selling phone systems. And he called me up and he's like, hey, man, you got to you got to come here. I'm going to make it's like $60,000 in my first year. I, my head exploded. I couldn't even imagine. That was more money than my father had ever made. And it was a whole lot more than 19. They told me I could make as a journalist. And I uh, pulled the plug on my dreams of the baseball tour and got to work. So this is hardcore, old school, boiler room style sales that you found yourself in the midst of. What yeah, was that like? It was, it was the best like first job uh, you could imagine. I was there for six years and it was uh, new business only. So it was a hunting job. No, once you sold the account, you flipped it to the installed base. And we did not have territory. So I was uh, on a team with, there were a whole bunch of these new business teams. I was on one of them. Uh, so they're kind of eight rep teams reporting to a manager and we were all in a cubicle bullpen together, cold calling all day to try to find, you know, companies that were interested in what we were selling. But since we didn't have territories, you were competing against your coworkers and friends. And so you'd be in a cube kind of cold calling, but whispering when you would, you know, ask the persons, ask for to get the person on the phone because you didn't want anyone to hear who you were calling against because they might have been calling the same person. So it was really brutal. And, I, you know, when I'm in our offices at Box now. We have all these amazing young sales professionals that are right out of school or in their first kind of five years of their career. And because they have territories, they're not in competition with one another. Now, they are competitive. We have leaderboards. Everyone wants to be the top rep, which is really great. But they're not competing with each other for business. 
And so they will close a deal and they're like high-fiving and celebrating each other, or they'll have a really good call and they will talk about it and say, Hey, you did this really well. And they'll learn from one another. And it was not like that when I was in sales, we were trying to kill each other and we were all friends as well. Like we, we would go out for drinks afterwards and stuff, but you were definitely like in heavy, heavy competition with your coworkers. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll jump back into the conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing, and I'm your host, Justin Schreiber. Let's get back to the discussion. I would say that there has certainly been a change in the mindset, the mentality of the seller, and also the way that the sellers are viewed today versus a couple of decades ago. Is it safe to say that uh, we're in a renaissance of sort when it comes to selling? Yeah, I, I have referred to it as a renaissance of sales. I really do think that the career is thought of very differently now than it was you know, 30 years ago uh, or even 20 years ago. Daniel Pink uh, wrote the book To Sell as Human, which you know basically says that we're all in sales. But the, the thing that's really changed from my perspective is that the job has become much more complex and much more sophisticated. And it's well highlighted in the Challenger sale book where they they basically research that buyers make up their mind 80% of the way before they show up at your digital doorstep. And so when I started in sales, if I got into the deal first, there was no internet and the customers, they had problems, but they had not self-prescribed solutions. And so I could basically help them think about what the solution to their problem would be. And if I was good at that, then I could sort of set the table on the deal in a way that was favorable to me. And then later when the competitors came in, they had to compete against a decision framework that I had already set up and my win rates would then be very, very high. And I think it's harder for sellers today because they have to undo people. They have a problem and they'll prescribe a solution. And that solution may not be very good for you as a provider. And you have to undo a lot of their thinking uh, in order to get the deal to come your way. So I think that the job today is is much harder. Now, it's easier in some ways because there's really great enablement and training and career frameworks and career paths. And, you know, we all have great marketing teams and, and everyone's getting flooded, hopefully, with leads. And, and uh, we have SDRs and OBRs, and BDRs and partners and all this kind of stuff that I did not have. But uh, the job is harder because it requires the, you know, the, the business acumen of a management consultant the technical acumen of a systems integrator, all of the relationship development skills that you would find from you know the, the world's greatest executives, um, a, a, along with the negotiating skills of a trial attorney, you you really to be a top selling rep and B two B complex sales today, you need all of those skills and traits, and that's why when I got in sales, you know, in the early nineties, it was a whole bunch of you know banged up state school people like me with a chip on their shoulder, and now at Box we have reps that went to these are, these are the greatest young professionals that are graduating from the top universities. And we have reps on our team that went to MIT and Yale and Stanford and on and on and on. And they would have never considered a career in sales 20 or 30 years ago because it's a much more professional career. It's much, it's much better respected. It's lucrative. So I think it's a, it's a wonderful renaissance that we're experiencing. The level of prestige that people attach to the selling profession has increased significantly. I started off my career in consulting one of the eye-opening moments I had, I remember reading a study, uh, Bain Capital. They, they went out and they looked across their portfolio of companies. They wanted to figure out what are the characteristics that will indicate whether or not the company is going to be a success. 
came back with a fascinating statistic. Those companies that are led by CEOs that ran sales have a significantly higher likelihood of being successful. I then noticed that partners in a consulting firm are really just great salespeople. Mm -hmm. They understand how to engage another executive, how to put a compelling value proposition on the table, how to engage in a dialogue about problem solving. And that kind of opened my eyes up. When I, when I came out of business school, I noticed that a lot of people were going into sales and that was something that I hadn't really heard before. So I think you're absolutely right. And I think that's because today selling requires an incredible amount of sophistication in terms of understanding business systems, how everything interlocks, how does technology enter into it? What are the, the human dynamics uh, psychologically that come into play? And uh, as a result of that, there are challenges that are exciting and stimulating and are attracting people from all different backgrounds. Absolutely. Yeah, I've experienced the same. And and yeah, if you're a partner in a in a consulting firm, you um, like when you're when you're an individual contributor in a consulting firm, your main metric that you're measured on is your utilization, how many hours you're billing. But mm -hmm. when you become a partner, that becomes one of the smaller metrics, and you got to make it rain. And you know, partners are salespeople. They they need to bring in business. That's what their job is. And whether they you know bill or not is really less important. I was in an interesting situation. I was at McKinsey down in Los Angeles. The crop of partners before I came in were phenomenal. I was a business analyst at the time, so kind of naive to this, but previous partners had built up this huge client base. The office was thriving. The next generation of partners never really learned how to source and cultivate relationships because they were provided to them. So when that first generation left, all of a sudden, the office started to shrivel up. The business went away, and there were moments where, crisis moments where, you know, was the office going to make it? They literally had to import partners from other parts of the country that knew how to build relationships and pull that office out of the jaws of defeat. But it really reinforced to me the importance of knowing how to build trusted relationships, sell your value, create value that creates ongoing um, opportunities to serve. Seems like some McKinsey consultants could do a good uh, study and report <laughs> on what happened in that office. <laughs> exactly. I don't know if you're going to hear that from them, but you heard it from me, Insider. So one thing that is common, though, across the generations of selling is grit. Regardless of whether you sold 30 years ago today, you got to have grit. As you think about identifying people that have, well, how do you think about grit in general? And how do you identify candidates that have it? Well, about if maybe 10 plus years ago, I, I, I really started reading um, the leadership lessons of John Wooden, the legendary coach from UCLA. Mm. I always knew about him, but I really didn't know about his leadership lessons. And I, I can't encourage sales leaders out there enough to read a book called Wooden on Leadership. It's really, really excellent. Like life lessons, Not it's really not about sports and about how do you get the most out of your whole team? Um, because what a lot of sales leaders do is they just really lean on their top two or three performers and they don't get the whole team to perform. And what Wooden figured out how to do is how to have 41 winning seasons when he only had over 41 years, two superstars in Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Bill Walton. So how do you, you have to get the whole team to perform. And it's really appropriate with a sales team. If you're a frontline sales manager and you have eight reps, you really need all eight to perform. You can't just have two that kill it and the rest of them don't because you're constantly in a massive attrition. So anyway, I was reading... Uh, an article of, uh, about um, Pete Carroll with the Seahawks in the, in the period when they went to the Super Bowl. And he's a John Wooden believer in his lessons. 
And then he was talking about Angela Duckworth in this book that she wrote on grit. And I was like, oh, who is this? So that led me to her TED Talk, which led me to her Freakonomics podcast. Now she's been on a bunch of others, but she wrote this book on grit. And I you know, consumed that thing in as fast as I could. And it really changed for me forever the way uh, that I evaluate talent, that I interview. Um, and, you know, we, we always hear people say about people that have sales DNA. And I've never really liked that term because I like things that I can measure and I can test for. And it seems like this, you know, God-given thing that someone either has or they don't have. And what I found in grit is something that I can actually measure and I can interview for and people can learn and grow and cultivate creating more grit in their lives. And Angela, uh, she spoke at our sales kickoff this year and, and boy, she must have been busy because I think she spoke at a whole bunch of sales kickoffs this year. Everyone's really uh, hooked on this grit concept, but she defines it as the passion and perseverance for long-term goals. And, you know, a quota over a fiscal year is indeed a long-term goal. And, you know, people um, that are in complex competitive selling environments, like we have here at Box, if they're not gritty, then they generally opt out and they go, this is hard. And I want to go work somewhere that's maybe doesn't, is not as hard. And so they will go to whatever the hot thing is. Maybe they'll go to a great company like Snowflake or, or, or Stripe or whatever it is. They'll go somewhere that they feel like will be easier. By the way, it ain't going to be easier. It's hard everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and, and you see this people that lack grit in sales, you'll see that they'll have, you know, five jobs in five years. And that's, mm-hmm. those are generally sellers that you don't want on your team because it's okay to have short stints, especially in, in, um, in startups because most of them fail. And so, you know, by definition, if you like working at startups, you're probably gonna have some short stints. But if that's all you have, five jobs in five years, that's probably a problem. And so in terms of identifying people with grit, I used to, before I read her book, I used to interview people and ask them about their wins. Like, you know, take me through a deal you're proud of. And I'd want to sort of go through the timeline of the deal, where the lead come from and tell me what you did that was unique to you. And you end up getting a lot of false positive information in those questions. And so now I really want to find out about people's losses. Like what is the hardest time in your career or in your personal life, whatever it is. And I want to find people that have stick with itness that they just never give up, you know, like I'm going to get into this account. I'm going to get in through the front door or the side door or the window. I'm going to climb down the chimney. I'm going to get into this account and I'm going to make something happen. That's the kind of, you know, demeanor that you want in a seller. One of my favorite questions to ask today in an interview is prior to entering the professional workforce, tell me about a challenge you faced and how you addressed it. It's fascinating to see the challenge that people pick. It's fascinating to see how they addressed it. You can learn so much about an individual. And, and it's just a very engaging uh, discussion point in an interview. I had two, I, I was uh, hiring one particular role on my team. And I remember one person came back when I asked, asked the question and it perplexed them a little bit. And they came back and they said, I used to deliver pizzas when I was in high school and I didn't like doing that anymore. So I stopped doing that and I found another job. And that was the extent, that was the challenge that they had faced <laughs> that they could come up with. Not saying anything against pizza delivery, but it was clear that this person had not thought a lot about what a real challenge was. And that was what they came up with. I talked to another person and they said, I was passionate about wrestling. I had wrestled all of my high school career. I went to a college just because of the wrestling program. And then he went through and talked about the horrible experience that he had in this wrestling program. 
for three years because of a couple of different things. And he said, but I love so res- wrestling so much. I stuck with it. Got a new coach at the end. And he said, I have my best year of my entire career that fourth year. And as he described this, one, I could tell how passionate he truly was about wrestling. Two, admiration for the fact that this guy went through some of the things that he went through. And I realized this, this person has the DNA to go through some really hard times because they believe in something. And it's exactly what you were describing that Angela purports, the passion and the the perseverance to stick with something or achieve a long-term goal. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I think that um, uh, there's there's a lot of uh, developmental areas for me, but uh, I'm fortunate that grit is not one of them. It's it's probably like the one like most consistent characteristic of that I've carried from when I was young. And I think that, you know, it just really starts um, from the area I grew up in. And, you know, there's a lot of kids I grew up with that were more fortunate than I was. And so when I was young, if I wanted a skateboard, like I remember I was really into BMX bikes and I asked my dad for a mongoose uh, every year for Christmas for like five years in a row. It never came. And it, it, so you learn a lesson from that. Like, oh, okay. Like if you want that mongoose, you're going to have to go get it. And so if I wanted a skateboard, I had to go get a job uh, to get a skateboard. So I sold peanuts at Cal Berkeley stadium and I worked at a coffee shop and, you know, if you walk up and down College Avenue in in Oakland, I've I've worked at many of the storefronts uh, because uh, whatever it is that I wanted to do, um, I had to like make it happen. So first it yeah. was like skateboards, and then it was you know I wanted to buy a moped, and then I wanted to buy a car, and then I wanted a nicer car, and all of those things were just I had to work, and um, and so that has always been you know I put myself through college waiting tables and. My friends would be, you know, going to Vegas for the weekend. And I would just think like, how, how are you doing that? I got to go to Red Lobster. It doesn't make any sense to me <laughs> that you're going to Vegas and who's paying for that? And how are you paying for a hotel room? Like we're in college. It doesn't make sense. So, I mean, I think that that for me, it's just been about work and the most consistent thing in my life. It's just been like working very, very hard. And, uh, you know, I'm 51. I think that a younger me did not think I'd be working as hard as I am now, but it's really just who I am it's, and it's, it's what I do. That's Mark Whalen, Chief Revenue Officer at Box. When we come back, Mark lays out how the same attribute put him on the fast track at Gartner and then nearly derailed his successful run. Stay with us, I'm Justin Schreiber, and you're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing. Welcome back. Today I'm joined by Mark Whalen, Chief Revenue Officer at Box. Mark's a big believer in grit, but he also readily acknowledges that the natural intensity that often accompanies that trait needs to be managed as people ascend the ranks of leadership. He learned that lesson the hard way at Gartner. Let's get back to the conversation. So I'm glad that you touched upon that. Grit is clearly a, an ingredient for success. That said, as you rise up the ranks as a manager, that grit and the intensity that comes with it needs to change. Because as you're interacting with people as a leader, it's not just about pushing them, pushing them, pushing them like you're used to pushing yourself. It's about inspiring them. And I'm interested to see if uh, you'd be willing to talk about your experience at Gartner as you move from individual contributor to manager. I know that that was a time that was challenging in this respect. Yeah, well, uh, so the grit piece, you know, that can stay with you and it sort of needs to. Um, the uh, 
uh, it, the way in which you manage people is important. And as you move higher and higher up the org chart, uh, you have to really adapt uh, to to the scale of those roles. And I think you know, the experience at Gartner, um, I was in a leadership position there and I was there for four years. And for the first two years, I would go to my performance reviews and the feedback I would get is like, you're a change agent and, you know, anything we put in front of you, you just run right through it and uh, keep doing what you're doing. And then I ended up in this job where it was kind of a bigger, more of a matrix organization and I was still doing the same thing. And then the very same manager sat me down for a performance review and he said, hey, man, you're breaking too much glass and people don't want to work with you. You got to stop doing that. And I was like, oh, wait a second. Just last quarter, you told me it was awesome and now you don't like it anymore. And he's like, you know, I don't know what to tell you, but we don't like it anymore. And uh, like it was a, a maturing moment for me to to realize that like you you can be a driver and and you can drive change and, and, and run through walls and all that sort of thing. But there's a way to be like a velvet hammer on things. Like you got to do things with kindness. And again, we're in a people business and, and your coworkers are people. And we're all coming to work with our own stresses and something might be going on at home. We might have a sick family member and no one wants some jerk like roughing them up in the office when they're working hard. Like I'm working just as hard as you are. Why are you being a jerk to me? It, it, it's just totally unnecessary. So uh, I, it's, it's why I love working at a place like box because we have very, very strong cultural antibodies to that kind of behavior. And, and that's the kind of environment that I like to work in where people treat each other with decency and kindness and they assume good intent, but are still driven and gritty and want results. I think that that's like the, the harmony that you have to create in your corporate culture. Well, you've certainly worked at companies that embody that marriage of grit, but also compassion, compassionate leadership. You spent some time at Salesforce. Mark Benioff is viewed as one of the great visionaries, but also an inspiring leader. Can you talk a little bit about some of your experiences with Mark and what he taught you? Yeah, I mean, he's he's an incredible leader. And um, I, I remember when I was at Gartner, uh, it was an $800 million uh, run rate company. And every year we'd go to these management offsites and the CEO at the time would say, we're going to be a billion dollar company. And we'd all go, yeah, we're going to be a billion dollars. And then next year it'd be 800 million again. It was like four years in a row, just stuck at 800 million. Uh, they've since blown obviously well past a billion with acquisitions and organic growth. But I was there during these like very, very flat stifling years. And then I got to Salesforce and I went to my first management offsite. The company was, you know, about 1500 employees. So the management team could fit in a hotel and we were 450 million in revenue. And he's like, we're going to be a billion dollar company. And I just remember thinking, this dude is nuts. Like that, that, it's not that easy to go from 450 to a billion. What is he even talking about? And it just seemed like overnight we were at a billion. And, and then the second billion came very quickly. He started talking about 2 billion. I'm like, I wasn't a math major at San Diego State, but that's doubling. I mean, he's really crazy. And then he started talking about three to five, which didn't seem unreasonable. And then he started talking about five to 10. And then he started talking about 25 and 50. And, you know, we were, I remember this period where we were, where we like broke into being one of the top 20 software companies on earth and then the top 10. And, you know, now you'll hear him talk publicly about one day being the largest software company on earth, which was like unimaginable a decade ago. And I don't know how I would bet against him and that company on that front. They probably will be. There's something to be said for thinking big. I think the beauty of, and the secret that Mark has is he's able to deliver. And I, a big part of that, I think, is attracting talent. 
he's got he's got great people on his team. Jim Steele actually was on the show not too long ago. Another phenomenal sales talent. And I know you worked with Jim a little bit as well. What are your memories of Jim and, and what did you learn from him? Jim is is uh, an incredible leader and uh, uh, we all look up to him and you know consider him a friend and a mentor and, and just was a joy to uh, work with. He's back at Salesforce now, as you likely know. Um, he, like if you were to do a Hollywood movie that had a VP of sales as a key character in it, he is that archetype. Like he's, he is the dude that would play that role. <laughs> he's, he's amazing. Uh, everyone loves Jim and he is probably the best I have ever, um, met in my career at relationship management, um, uh, executive presence, name recall, like absolutely amazing. I, I think the first sales call I went on at, uh, Salesforce was at Autodesk and, um, and Jim joined us on that call because he was sort of executive sponsor. And, and I just remember being in that meeting and I was, you know, my first month at Salesforce and just thinking, holy smokes, like this is watching magic at work, seeing this executive, you know, interact with the CIO at Autodesk. It was better than anything I'd ever seen. And I'd worked with some really talented sellers. I mean, he's just, he, there's only one Jim. There's nothing, there's no one else like him. And as good as Jim is, Jim also had to develop those talents and those skills. He talked about the fact that even when he showed up at Salesforce, he got prodded by Mark a little bit to get out, get in the field, interact with customers. So while we appreciate the executive that he is today, that's the byproduct of a lifelong journey that he's been on. And, and for me, that's the inspiring thing to remember is that we're all on this journey we all start where we start. We can get better. It just takes sustained focus to be able to grow like that. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And having that growth mindset that, you know, you never want to get to a point in your career where you feel like, all right, I know how to do this. I have this all wrapped up. You always want to be getting better. And we can always, each of us can all be adding, you know, new new tools to our, uh, to our toolkit in terms of the way that we sell, in terms of the way that we lead, how we interact with others. We can always get better. So you're the CRO at Box now. How did you land at Box? I took a little sabbatical for the first time in my career. I took six months off. And during that period, you know, I've been on many vacations and stuff, but always with a job where the emails are still coming in and you can't, you know, help yourself from swiping away no matter where you are in the world. And this was the first time in like 30 years that I didn't have any of that. And, and I was very uh, intentional about how I was going to use that time. And one of the things I did during that time is some some pretty deep work on documenting my values. And I started with a list of like 20 things that were important to me. And then I reworked it and reworked it and reworked it and reprioritized things, collapsed some things together. And what I found is I spent so much of my career focused on what I would call back of the baseball card stat uh, items that were important to me. You know, what's my OTE and how many reps are on the team and what's the revenue and what market are we in and all that, what's the title and all these kind of ego oriented things. And when I reflect back on my career of where um, I've experienced the most joy and satisfaction from my work versus like the least in the most painful environments that I've worked in, the the personal growth thing is important to me. I have to be in environments where I'm learning and growing and I'm stretched and I'm in a job now where I am without a doubt stretched. Um, but I have to work with good people. Like culture is the most important thing for me in terms of the environment I will work in. And everything else is a really distant second. And so 
when the box opportunity sort of presented itself, um, that was the, the, the way in which I evaluated the opportunity primarily. And, um, you know, Aaron is an amazing executive and just a really good human. And the culture of the company is like an embodiment in a lot of ways of his personality. And it's just a delightful place to work. And, you know, to, to be in a company where we're trying to sort of reaccelerate growth, um, to do that, I've been here for two, just about two years and more than a year and a half, I've been at home. And so it's kind of weird to, you know, like be reaccelerating growth in a SaaS company from home <laughs> as the CRO. And it would be unbearable if it were a toxic culture. And it's just been like a real treat over this last bizarre, you know, uh, hopefully once in a lifetime experience we've all been in to, uh, to be a part of the transformation of this company from where I am right now. <laughs> I wanted to circle back on a point you made related to culture. To a large extent, it really is an embodiment of the founder. So true. I think about the companies that I've been at, Oracle and, and Larry Ellison, uh, LinkedIn and and Reed, and this is it. Really becomes a projection of the values that they hold dear, and it's fascinating how those then transcend the various facets of the company. How what is Aaron like as a person? How does he approach business, and how have you seen that translate into the box culture? Yeah, well, first of all, he's really passionate, and uh, he's uh, he's a visionary and an innovator, and and brilliant, like wicked, wicked smart. And so you would expect that in, in a founder, um, uh, a founder led public company, um, that those all would all be sort of understandable ingredients. Uh, but he's also really funny, uh, and like in a, in a very kind of silly, goofy, just charming way. He's brilliant in front of customers. I mean, we have these, a CIO advisory board and, and you can tell, that our CIO advisory board are very fond of him as a person, not just like fond of the technology that we create and the solutions and everything else and like a trusted vendor, but they like him because he's incredibly likable. Uh, but the thing that really, I think, stands out for me with Aaron is that he's deeply curious. And I think that for a lot of executives, you know, you sort of get to a certain plateau and the, the results that you and your teams have generated, and, and, and maybe that's, you know, however you measure it in revenue or market cap or number of customers or how much dough you've made, whatever, however people keep score, that, that scoreboard can tell you, you know, I know what's up. <laughs> and, and, and it can lock you into your thinking. It can create certainty in your, in your thinking. Um, because you've done so well, you've created so much. I have really good ideas. They're all good. Um, and, he certainly is very confident in his thinking for good reason, but he's deeply curious. So if we have a, a strategic sort of crossroads, he'll have an opinion on it. And if someone has a contrasting opinion, he doesn't shut it down. He really wants to hear why the other person is thinking that and, he, and he'll approach it with sincere curiosity. And then I've seen him change his mind on things that he had a really firm opinion on. And that is not an experience that I've had a lot with really senior executives. And, and it's a, an incredible quality in him. So there's a level of, of self-awareness, a well, level of humility, and a willingness to listen to, yeah. to the people he surrounds himself with. And he's about as egoless as you can be as a CEO of a public company. Yeah. I'm interested also in talking a little bit more about your personal sales philosophy. We talked about one of the tenants, which is remember that you're in a people business. What's the other, what are the other anchor elements of that philosophy? 
Well, one of the things that we've been really focused on here at Box is around renewals. And I've heard a lot of SaaS CROs in recent years um, say that renewals are the new growth. And I think that, you know, the recent Okta report, they do a, a great annual report on um, how SaaS applications are being adopted. And, and the recent report uh, found that the average enterprise has 175 SaaS applications. And so if you've got, that's not 175 too many, but it's probably 100 too many. And every one of those applications, even though they are pre-integrated and they're easier to use in the cloud, that's a, that's 175 salespeople, 175 CSMs, 175 renewals managers, 175 admin consoles. It's a lot. And, and so, you know, churn in SaaS is a real problem. And there are, you know, some major platforms that organizations invest in, like a Salesforce or a Workday or a ServiceNow. And it's pretty hard to pull those things out. But for the rest of us that are, um, uh, we all have uh, renewal challenges uh, because CIOs, they don't want 175 SaaS apps. They, they've been overserved at the SaaS table and they want fewer vendors. Uh, so I think that we're moving into a wave of consolidation. And so uh, here at Box, um, I think historically, like we had a renewals team. And if you ask people at Box, you know, who's responsible for renewals, they'd be like, oh, those people over there that have renewals in their titles. And, and what we've really done over the last couple of years is we've deeply um, come to understand and accept that the whole company is on the renewals team. That like the, the renewal motion in a subscription business is the most important function. Because if you, if you do a $100,000 deal and a year later they churn, you have to fill that 100K with net new just to get to flat growth. So it makes it really hard to create a growth company if you have a leaky bucket. And so... If you're on our product team, everything that we build from a product standpoint, we need to think about the usability of it so we can drive high levels of adoption and stickiness because that leads to high renewal rates. If you're on the sales team, you need to be very thoughtful about selling people software that they're going to use and partnering with them to create an implementation plan with you know our consultants or with one of our SI partners so that they can have a really successful implementation because if they have a successful implementation, they're more likely to renew. So in every department of our company, I think that everyone understands what they what role they play in terms of driving renewals. And I think it's a really critical thing that, that uh, we have the appropriate focus on today. I think that's a fascinating insight. Out of the gate, I would assume that if you asked a customer success person what their job is, probably renewals would come up pretty quickly. If you were to go to sales though and say, what are you in the business to do? It's a mind shift to say, I'm in the business to generate renewals. Typically they're gonna say, I'm in the business to close new logos or whatever. And then also from a marketing perspective, what are you in the business of doing to get the marketer to say, I'm in the business of renewals is also a um, maybe a controversial statement, but there's a remarkable power if you get all of the go-to-market functions and even the supporting functions focused on renewals. It changes the way that you reach out and touch them the first time, the way that you nurture relationships, close deals, and then what you do after the deals. Yeah, I mean, I'm a believer that when you close a deal, uh, you've got 364 selling days and, and the renewal can't start, you know, 30, 60 days before the before the renewal date. It's it, We're always reselling. I learned that at Salesforce and it's easier to sell to an installed customer than it is to a prospect. So. Um, if you have add-on products, and most of us do, we can you know we can sell more seats, or we can sell more SKUs, or new additions. Then you got to make sure that you renew those accounts, or you don't get that opportunity. 
And, and, uh, so it's a, it's a super important part of our motion. Well, Mark, you just gave me the theme for our next marketing offsite. I'll be sure and give you credit for that one. <laughs> Love it. One more question just to close with Mark, as you look back over the arc of your career, over the arc of your life, if you had to nail it down to one thing, what is that one thing that's made the biggest difference for you? The thing that's made the biggest difference for me is the people that I've been fortunate to work around and for and and, uh, and being able to learn from them. So really through each phase of my career, um, I've had mentors that have really, really helped me and they've been willing to give me tough advice. They've been uh, they've been um, willing to, you know, encourage me and highlight areas where I have strengths. And uh, and then I have been able to model um, behaviors after them. And, and in each phase of my career, I've, you know, learned from someone different, you know, Salesforce for 10 years was, you know, probably the most intense, uh, opportunity to learn because not only did I work for really, really amazing people, um, who, who their, their work style is all over their fingerprints are all over what I do now. Um, but my peers were amazing, you know, and it was just, it was a place where, you were never the smartest person in the room and you really had to keep up and, and just trying to keep up with everyone really made you better because in, in every function, people were so good. And I remember when I got there, I was like, I was used to it being in companies where, where you do so many different jobs because there's so many broken processes. And like I was involved in account planning you're, and, you know, setting up all sorts of different things. I got to Salesforce and they were starting an account planning discipline. I was like, Hey, I can help you with that. And they're like, we got it. And I remember being a little offended. Like, what do you mean? You don't want my help, but you very quickly realize like all these other functions are being done so well. I don't have to worry about it. I can really just focus on leading my sales team. And, uh, that's what that place was like in the years that I was there. And, and so I think to answer the question, it's really about, you know, surrounding yourself with greatness. Uh, don't, don't try to be a big fish in a small pond, go somewhere where there are really, really bright people that you can learn from and, uh, and, and take the opportunity to learn, you know, as much as you can. That's the thing that's been best for me. The old adage in real estate is you never want to own the most expensive house on the block. Yeah. And I think also you never want to be the smartest person in the room. You do not. If you're the smartest person in the room, leave the room. There's, uh, <laughs> there's no upside in either of those scenarios. No. Well, Mark, it's been a great conversation. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in today to Legends of Sales and Marketing. For more inspiring stories about how today's most influential sales and marketing execs got their start and made their mark, be sure to check out the full lineup of guests. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you find interesting conversations. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams and boxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.